Hamas gunmen broke through the barrier that Israel uses to contain Palestinians in Gaza. The militants, designated as terrorists by the US, fired waves of rockets into Israel and arrived by sea and even in paragliders. Civilians were slaughtered in the towns of southern Israel. Israel's responded by targeting the Gaza Strip with hundreds of airstrikes. But the question is how Israeli intelligence failed to detect the planning for such a massive attack. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, of course, we're covering Hamas's massacre of Israelis last Saturday and Israel's subsequent bombardment and looming ground invasion of Gaza. You'll all know by now what happened on Saturday morning. Hamas broke through the barricade that shuts in Gaza. Palestinian gunmen rampaged through parts of southern Israel, killing more than a thousand Israelis, many of whom were civilians, women, children, the elderly, entire families among them. Militants dragged perhaps 150 hostages back to Gaza. Towering plumes of smoke rose over the Gaza city skyline. As the Middle East woke up to another day at war. Airstrikes pounded Jabalia, a refugee camp north of Gaza City. Moments earlier, this was a bustling supermarket. Bulldozers dug through the twisted wreckage of daily life as crowds of people searched beneath the rubble for survivors. Since the Hamas attack, Israel's been bombing and blockading Gaza. As we put this out on Friday, Israel has ordered more than a million Gazans in Gaza City and other parts of the north of the Strip to move south, ahead of what looks likely to be a major ground operation. So we're going to do this episode in four parts. First, I spoke last Tuesday to my colleague in Gaza, Azmi Kashawi. I wanted to speak to him early because we weren't sure how long we were going to be able to communicate with him. Then we'll hear from Crisis Group's Israel expert, Myra Zonshine, and our Middle East North Africa director, Joost Hilterman. And at the end, I speak again to Azmi from Gaza, this time on Friday, after Israel's order for Gazans to leave the north of the Strip. So this then first is my conversation with Azmi on Tuesday. Azmi, hi. Hi, Richard. Azmi, thanks so much for joining. Do you want to talk a bit about what's been happening in Gaza over the last few days? Well, we walked up on the morning of the 7th on a burst of rockets going towards Israel, and it was surprising to us because we thought uh, the situation had de-escalated and uh, we're going to be witnessing more of a calmer uh, area because there were a lot of mediation between uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And then the news start coming about uh, Hamas is attacking Israel from Gaza, and then all the pictures start coming out. It was unbelievable, unimaginable, and uh, we never thought, you know, things will escalate up to this kind, which for the first time in, in my life, I've witnessed such a huge escalation. This wasn't easy on anyone, including the, the Israelis, and the Israelis, uh, you know, start retaliation for the 7th of, uh, of October by a huge, the most severe air bombardment I've ever witnessed. You know, they start wiping out the blocks out of, of, of the map, families out of the civil records, all the inst- civil institutions. Of course, we know uh, Hamas is the de facto government in Gaza, and they run the affairs of civilians through uh, government building, municipalities, and things like this. All of this is gone now. If you open any window in your side, you will see destruction everywhere. 
all the offices which they had been destroying, schools, hospitals, uh, ordinary homes, uh, high-rise building, over than 15 high-rise building until now, even more. This is the last count I I had. uh, Thousands of uh, houses around the Gaza Strip, uh, mosques, you know, it's all civilian places. And Asma, you've lived through and we've spoken during previous bombardments of Gaza. We're what, only a few days in, but how does this time compare with those previous rounds? Well, I would say last night was the most horrible night I've ever witnessed in, in all my entire life. And on my work as a journalist for the past, I've been a journalist since 19, 1989. This is the most horrible night I've ever witnessed. The building was dancing, practically dancing, you feel. It's like an earthquake, but it's not a 20-second earthquake. It's a 24-hour earthquake. That's a new new experience uh, for me. And also, the intensity of fire and destruction. I think, uh, you know, if you combine the five past wars and escalation together, wouldn't matter to half of the intensity of destruction and uh, fire. I always been worried. I mean, every time there is a bombardment, you know, you get worried. But this time, you try to encourage the people uh, around you, your family, the young kids, and you know. But this time, it was, it was, you yourself is too scared to be able to convey courage to the others. You know, no one had experienced this kind of terror before, because you don't know if you. What side of the house you should be sitting in, or of your own house is safe, especially there. You know, the latest bombardment was like 30, 30 to 40 meters away from my home. The one before it, it was 200 meters. You feel it's, it's, it's hitting your place. So, in the past, Israel has given warnings about when they're going to hit a residential building so people can leave. Has that been happening this time? Yes. Well, Part of it. Uh, in, in the past, when they wanted to destroy a house, a mosque, uh, any institution, either they called the people around it or they sent a warning, uh, one or two warning rockets from uh, uh, from a drone, which is it doesn't make much damage, but everybody will know that. Uh, and then everybody leaves, then they, 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 they bump the, the, the targeted place, then people can come back. This time, they have done it only when they wanted to destroy uh, high-rise buildings. They warned the, the people, and they give them enough time to, to evacuate. But now, they're only doing it when they do a high-rise buildings, because they had uh, targeted an apartment in the middle of the market of Jabalia, killing over than 50 people. They targeted tens of houses without a warning, uh, killing tens of people from women and children, and, of course, the, the males also without a warning. So this practice is no longer, it, they, it, they only apply it when they shoot a high-rise building. Yesterday was a different case because they had worn uh, a one-kilometer black radius, and a whole area to evacuate, not only the target. And when we woke up this morning, you know, well, I didn't sleep to wake up, but when, when I managed to get closer, they have wiped the whole area completely. So, in essence, they've asked people to leave a whole area, and then that's been destroyed. Asmi, could you talk a little bit about how supplies are? I mean, Israel, as we heard up top, has 
blockaded Gaza, has stopped supplies going into Gaza, gas is running out, no electricity, food and water not going in. How is that affecting you? Let me tell you about the living conditions at the moment. Electricity is already off. We don't have electricity anymore. The only reason I have electricity now is we have a, a, a building generator which runs for three hours every other day, but now every day. But in in couple of days, we will run out of fuel and there is no fuel in Gaza. And also the Israelis are not allowing the the local power plant, which, which produces 65 megawatts a day, you know, which is comparing probably 10% of, of the Gaza need, is to run on any other fuel except the one supplied by Israel. They said if they start running it on the fuel supplied from Egypt, they're going to bomb it. And this will reflect on the water. If you don't have electricity, you cannot run those water well and push water into the houses. And if it reaches the houses, you cannot push it up to the up of the building to, to feed the people. So we're going to have a real water crisis within within a few days. Food, uh, we're running a lot of things on, on, on the supermarket. I want to buy some, some supplies today. Many of the things are out of shelves, you know, because the Israelis are not allowing food in. Uh, sewage, if, if there is no electricity, you cannot run the sewage plant, you cannot push it, so you will thin, send it, they will send it into the sea untreated. Uh, health, already the Ministry of Health uh, hospitals are crying out of, uh, of the lack of the proper things they need to operate on people because we have a massive uh, need. At, I mean, hospitals are flooded with wounded people from all these airstrikes. So they have no capability to, to, to do major surgeries. So Minister of Health is suffering. Civil Defense, you know, the one who go and help, you know, in distinguishing fires and things like this, they cannot go. Some of their places had been destroyed. Some of them they cannot refuel because there is no water. So they're having a massive trouble to help the, the people. Ambulances, over the nine ambulances had been shot from the sky killing the people who had been uh, transferred into hospitals. Retaliation against Hamas uh, and Hamas stations, probably this can be understood by everyone. But retaliation against civilians, we cannot comprehend that international community is allowing it to happen out of this scale. Is there any sense at all that people are frustrated at Hamas for bringing this Israeli retribution? For the attack? For the first time in the past three days, I've been out to the market uh, is this noon or around the, a little bit afternoon, you know, and I've seen some people and spoke to some people, you know. In fact, in reality, it's the opposite. People were angry about Hamas before this uh, operation, you know, angry for the taxation, for the deterioration of living conditions and they thought Hamas is the facto government should do something about it, and Hamas was not doing something about it. So they were angry, and everybody was talking, you know. But when Hamas had went uh, into the Israelis and invaded the, the Israel, now I see those who were angry yesterday with Hamas are less angry with Hamas today. And some some of them they say, okay, we forgive you because we didn't know that you were doing all this pressure on us. Asmi, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, my friend, and all the best for everyone else. We're going to turn now to Myra Zonshine, crisis groups expert in Israel. Myra, welcome back on. Could we 
start with what happened on Saturday. How did the news and the scale, the horror of the attack from Gaza, how did that news break? Yeah, so I was actually abroad with my family in Greece. Um, but like many other Israelis, I woke up and saw a news alert about rocket sirens from Gaza in the south. Um, so my first thought was, okay, we might be entering another round, like many rounds that we've seen. Uh, it didn't seem too out of the ordinary, even though Gaza has been quiet recently. But then very quickly, I started seeing on Twitter a flood of videos of uh, what was purported to be Hamas militants on jeeps and on motorcycles just, you know, driving through southern border, border communities. These are Israeli citizens who live within a kilometer or two of Gaza. Um, and you just see people shooting into the air. You don't see any Israelis in these videos, but you see that something very, very different is happening. Um, and then I think maybe an hour or two into that, I suddenly saw a Palestinian Gazan journalist literally reporting live from inside an Israeli uh, town uh, in the south about what's happening with completely unfettered with no soldiers around, it's just reporting as if he's in Gaza, but inside Israel. And that was really shocking for many people. Um, and I think for hours, the the news in Israel didn't actually report, um, you know, numbers. It had no idea what was going on. For hours, there were reports of Israelis stuck in their safe rooms or shelters or hiding in their homes, homes not knowing what's happening, hearing shooting and begging for help with literally not a single soldier or boot on the ground. So over the past few days, you know, more stories have been coming out and the extent of the attack has become clearer. I mean, it was a massacre, I mean, several massacres. Palestinian militants, I'm sure most of our listeners now know the stories. 260 people gunned down at an outdoor music festival or party in other places, going door to door in towns, in kibbutzims, killing entire families, women, children, elderly people, murdering people, trying to escape in cars. More than a thousand people killed. It must have seemed almost unimaginable in Israel. Uh, it's the worst attack Israel has ever experienced. It's also more fatalities in a single day than in the entire Second Intifada, which I think reached close to a thousand Israelis. But we're talking about over, I think, a thousand two hundred in literally a number of hours. Um, so a, a combination of just endless automatic fire and RPGs and suicide drones attacking uh, IDF bases and just uh, killing as many people as possible in as short as amount of pos as possible. And this is something that we're still kind of uh, discovering the scope of it. Only yesterday did one community have their number of corpses counted. And uh, I think the IDF has already said that this wasn't uh, just another attack uh, or even the biggest terror attack, but that this was maybe even a possible attempt to reoccupy or occupy uh, parts of southern Israel. I don't, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's something that was at all Hamas goal or even something they were capable of, but the amount of combatants and Palestinians who came in uh, through the border fence or through uh, the air or through the sea is, I think, in the thousands. Um, there's been at least a thousand uh, dead Palestinians that were killed by forces on the ground. And I'm sure many more that were able to cross back and take captives with them. So uh, at first, the estimate was between 800 and 1,000 had penetrated, but it seems like it's now many, many more than that that were able to get in. And obviously a huge intelligence failure by the Israeli security establishment and a lot of different stories going around about how Hamas were able to do this, but how are people explaining that in Israel? 
Well, I mean, this is something that will have to be investigated for months and years to come, I believe. This is something that Israelis will demand answers for, similar to the Yom Kippur War in 1973 that so many Israelis are comparing this to. But it's one thing is clear that, uh, that there are specific Gaza divisions in the IDF uh, that are stationed in Gaza that were actually moved and stationed at least one a large division that was stationed in the West Bank. And in general, over the last few months and the last year, we've seen the deadliest year for Palestinians as well as Israelis in the West Bank. And much of Israel's focus has been on the West Bank as far as the armed groups and increasing terror attacks and also protecting settlers and the increasing amounts of settler violence that we've seen, which is is largely protected by Israeli soldiers. So and also the government there's you know government ministers who have been provoking all kinds of acts of israelis going into the west bank which requires uh, soldiers to be on the ground so that's one major element of this is that there just weren't soldiers uh, in those communities uh, the other is that uh, israel clearly was duped by hamas into thinking that hamas was not interested in an escalation at this point that it was happy to have 15,000 of its uh, people coming into work every day, and that these uh, economic incentives were enough for Hamas to, to be quiet for now, and that it was more interested in inciting the West Bank um, and maybe Jerusalem, but that... And Myra, these were sort of economic incentives, allowing some Gazans to come into Israel to work, allowing other countries to send money, funds to the Hamas government to try and improve sort of the Gazan economy in exchange for quiet. Yes, this has been the status quo since pretty much May 2021, for the most part. Since then, Hamas has not taken responsibility for attacks into Israel, as far as I know. But what we're seeing in the reports is that it, it was apparently a very calculated strategy of, of giving Israel that impression and keeping this operation uh, to a minimum number of people and planning uh, literally drills in which it made mock settlements inside Israeli community towns inside Gaza and practicing different ways of penetrating those communities. So this is a, a very extensive operation that Israel simply did not see coming. In the political crisis, the mass protests over Netanyahu's proposed judicial reforms, the hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the streets each week protesting against Netanyahu's government, some people in the security forces also upset did that contribute to the intelligence failure? Yeah, I mean, you've had former security officials and current security apparatus saying for months to Netanyahu that the national unity and the national security of Israel is being deteriorated as a result of the judicial overhaul and the mass protests. Um, so this was something that many people had been warning about, that this made Israel much more vulnerable. And has there been a lot of, of anger at the government in addition, of course, to the fury at Hamas? Or, or has it been, at least for now, more of a a unifying moment for Israelis. You're seeing people who are currently uh, in hospital, either hospitalized or accompanying relatives who are hospitalized being uh, interviewed on live TV. You're seeing funerals in which people are speaking about their loved ones, and they are specifically taking those moments to criticize the government. So there's very palpable anger. And, and a f more than even the anger or the, the calculated criticism is a feeling that they were just left completely exposed and vulnerable, that there was nobody to care for them, even after the attacks happened, that there was nobody to, there to tell them about what's happening, where their families might have been taken, and what they're going to do to bring them back. Uh, even until now, Netanyahu has not said anything about making it a priority to bring back the captives. So people feel as if this government doesn't even have their interests in mind. These are the, the people in the South who were the victims of the, of the attacks? 
Yes, and they have loved ones, kids and elderly people that are currently being held in Gaza, and they, they're not being told whether or not the government is even going to do anything to bring them back. And it looks now as though the Israeli security forces, the Israeli army, gearing up for a ground operation in Gaza of a completely different scale to those of the past, uh, an operation that's aimed at, in the words of Israeli leaders, destroying Hamas. And yet there are maybe some 150 Israeli hostages, some citizens of other countries, Western countries. How do you think people feel about the balance between the goal of trying to destroy Hamas and the risks of losing hostages? I think the families feel that the government is not making it a priority. I don't think that's a major factor in the army's decision-making process right now. I also think that at the current stage, Israel is you know, preparing for something quite large and maybe long-term. It's unclear if and when it will enter through ground. I think first it will exhaust its ability to strike from the air. Israel knows it will be, uh, there will be a high price for its own soldiers if it goes in on the ground into Hamas territory. So I think first it's going to do everything it can uh, before that to kind of clear the area uh, the way it sees it and try to prepare the ground for a larger operation, which it has said the goal of which is to completely debilitate Hamas. So Netanyahu and the Israeli far right have had a sort of odd relationship in the past with Hamas, right? I mean, on the one hand, they're sworn enemies, but on the other, Hamas, I think even Netanyahu has said this, is quite convenient for the Israeli right. It's a pretext for saying that the Palestinians are divided, they're radical, they're not a partner for peace, and a reason for not engaging Palestinian leaders in serious talks. How much does that play into public consciousness and to the debate in Israel? Yeah, I mean, there's been, you know, uh, a lot of criticism of Netanyahu and the far right for, uh, which they've said openly over the years that they need to keep Hamas, they, they want to kind of mow the grass every few years, but keep Hamas around because Hamas is the perfect alibi for why not to enter into a political negotiation towards a two-state solution. So that's something that's also kind of becoming more and more apparent to many Israelis. And in that sense, there's also more and more public pressure to get rid of Hamas uh, as a result. And Mayrov, how do you assess the risks if things, as looks likely to happen, escalate in Gaza, of violence flaring up in the West Bank or Jerusalem, or even Palestinian citizens of Israel taking to the streets in Israel itself, suffering reprisal attacks? I mean, is that a fear that Israelis have? I mean, I think part of the fears for Israelis, which are ignited by the far right in the government, is that there will be a, an explosion of inter-Israeli violence between Palestinians and Israelis, that Palestinian citizens will join Hamas and others in trying to inflict damage and, and to kill uh, Jewish Israelis. That's not something that I think is going to happen. And also leaders of the Palestinian community in Israel, Ayman Odeh and Mansour Abbas, have called out Hamas's violence and called for all citizens to abide by, um, you know, basic humanity. But I think in the Israeli public consciousness, there's major fears of that happening. The West Bank and Jerusalem could easily explode further, especially when all of the attention, both uh, as far as the Israeli forces and the, me the media, are on Gaza and to an extent also in the north, where you're seeing increasing fire exchanges that could explode. So the West Bank and Jerusalem could easily escalate further, and it would be a, a multi-front issue for Israel and for Palestinians in the West Bank. They're completely exposed. Marov, tell me if this is wrong, but in some ways, Israelis, not just Netanyahu and, and political elites, but Israeli society more broadly had grown and somehow sort of got used to the idea or grown to think that they didn't have to worry about the Palestinian question, that people could live normal lives even 
while the occupation continued. It's been a while since the Second Intifada or the days of uh, regular attacks in Israel by Palestinian militants. In that sense, this must have been all the more shocking and traumatic. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's complacency that has resulted from years of Israeli leadership being quite successful at completely sidelining the Palestinian issue and and enabling Israelis to lead very normal lives. I mean, you have this music festival literally two kilometers from, you know, one of the most besieged places in the world. Um, The fact that that can happen is in itself kind of uh, the image of the cognitive dissonance that we have here. And Netanyahu's mantra and legacy, uh, especially since the Abraham Accords and what led to it, is that we can make peace and normalize with Arab countries and without engaging with the Palestinians. That is something that Israeli leaders, not just Netanyahu, also Bennett and Yair Lapid before him, they have said very openly this is not the major issue facing Israel. Uh, they talked about Iran. They talked about other security issues. They thought that they could leave this to the margins. But that's you know clearly not the case. And Israel, despite its support from a superpower, despite having high-tech and sophisticated technology and weaponry, was not able to not only to anticipate this, but to respond uh, in a fashion that was able to prevent such a huge loss of life. So I think the lesson here is that no amount of uh, might and power can really solve a crisis that is essentially a political crisis with an adversary that is able to develop uh, and invest time in asymmetrical warfare and in various ways of circumventing, you know, what is the, the biggest power in the region. Myra, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. So now we're going to talk to Joost Hilsman, Crisis Group's Middle East North Africa Director. Joost, welcome back onto the podcast. Thank you. So Joost, I talked to Asmi a little bit about this when we spoke, but how do you explain the timing? of the attack and Hamas's motives? I mean, why do you think Hamas perpetrated the attack now? So, Richard, I think Hamas has been calculating this for quite some time, that's clear, and realizing that, you know, it's fought five or six rounds of war with Israel, depending on how you see it, uh, since uh, 2006, 2007, when they, after they won the elections in Palestine, they gained control of Gaza uh, and have been isolated ever since. Israel um, imposed a complete siege, embargo, blockade, whatever you want to call it, that has led to tremendous suffering. None of these rounds of conflict produced any positive change for the people in Gaza. And in fact, it led to destruction each time. Whenever a new round broke out, the old damage hadn't even been repaired. So overall, uh, the situation has been desperate. And I think in their heads, the leadership of Hamas, or at least the hardliners who are currently in control, must have calculated that they needed to do something dramatically different. That uh, to just to fight another war when they were ready and when Israel was ready, so maybe two or three years, four years after the last round, we come back to the same spot as before. Israel calls it mowing the lawn. And, and Hamas didn't want to play that game anymore. They wanted to break out of the mold, and they did. Of course, you can ask them what it would lead to, but that's a different question. But I think it's very much this notion that they wanted to to completely radically transform the situation in Gaza. Also knowing that this would lead to terrible destruction uh, at the hands of the Israeli forces. So let's say that Hamas wanted to shake up the status quo, but they must have known that after an attack of this scale, an attack like this, assuming that they, they knew themselves that it would turn out to be of this scale and this horror, 
they must have known that Israel would do everything possible to destroy the group, to eradicate Hamas. And you know, Israeli leaders have said that that's exactly what they want to do. I mean, Hamas have, must have known that would be coming. How do they think that they, let alone Palestinians, would stand to benefit? So, so you have to keep in mind that Hamas is not only in Gaza. Hamas uh, is a movement that is based in uh, the Palestinian territories, the occupied territories, but also outside. It has a presence in Jordan, and the leadership is in uh, Turkey and Qatar uh, when it's not inside the Palestinian territories. So the movement as such will survive this regardless of what happens in Gaza. But I think also uh, the commanders in charge in Gaza, they have an end game in mind. Some have said that uh, for Hamas, this is a suicidal action. Well, there's no doubt that a number of Hamas fighters and commanders, uh, if they haven't already died, will die in what is uh, going to take place, uh, what is taking place now in the Israeli assault on Gaza, uh, especially if there's going to be a ground invasion. But I think their, their calculation is, is that, they, first of all, they want an Israeli ground invasion because this will also lead to the death of many uh, Israeli soldiers, in addition to the heavy suffering that they themselves will sustain. But it would also bring out to the world the extent of the devastation in Gaza, uh, where two million people live in a very small territory. And I think that that extent of the suffering, or let me say that, that Hamas in its calculations is counting on this becoming uh, visible to the outside world, and that that will then lead to a, a, somehow a decision by international actors to say, okay, the situation in Gaza, in fact, after 17 years, was not sustainable. So what are we going to do? And it's really too early to predict how this is going to play out because it depends on how Israel sees its uh, endgame in Gaza as well. It seems like they're, at least the mood around the world now suggests like Hamas is miscalculating that it seems unlikely that this is going to, even over the long term, improve the plight of Gazans. That is very likely. But uh, then I think Hamas wants to place the burden of caring for the Gazan population on others. Either Israel needs to resume a direct occupation, which would in a way play into Hamas's hands because it exposes the occupier for what it is, or preferably in the hands of the international community in some form, but not in Hamas's hands, because Hamas, as you know, has come under increasing criticism for not governing effectively, not providing the kinds of services that people in Gaza expect. And of course, they blame the Israeli siege, but they also are blaming increasingly Hamas and there have been street demonstrations. It's a lot of talk in Washington at the moment about Iran, not only in supporting Hamas, but also in actually ordering the attack. Do you think that's likely? So first of all, I would say that what Hamas did was entirely internally generated in terms of motivation. Did it receive outside support, military support from, from Iran? It has been getting military support from Iran for a long time. So yes, there is no doubt about it. Funds maybe as well. But that's not the same as, as motivation. So that's one. Two, when it comes to direct Iranian support for this operation, both the United States and Israel have said publicly that they haven't seen a smoking gun. They don't d dispel the, the possibility of it. They also say that they haven't seen it. Because if we look at this alliance of Iran with non-state actors in the region, especially in this case, Hamas and Hezbollah, then um, you, can, you can see that, okay, maybe they are planning something big to bring Israel to its knees, let's say, uh, from their perspective. 
then you give Hamas the green light, Hamas attacks, it creates quite a bit of damage uh, in Israel, and it exposes Israel's vulnerabilities. But then you don't seize on that opportunity to go to attack in the north as well. This would have been the perfect moment. But there is no sign. In fact, Hezbollah is, is going out of its way uh, not to cross any Israeli red lines. So yes, Iran benefits. Iran is probably cheering on what Hamas is doing. It may well be that any normalization efforts by Saudi Arabia or by the United States when it comes to Israel and Saudi Arabia is going to be uh, delayed, maybe indefinitely. Iran benefits, but uh, any sort of uh, direct uh, instructions seems very unlikely to me. And do you think if Israeli ground troops go into Gaza, you think Hezbollah is going to be able to stand by and not get involved, not open another front? You know, much is going to play out uh, also between the United States and Israel in the coming period. The United States doesn't want, as far as I understand, the Biden administration, an open confrontation with Iran. If Israel and Iran come to blows, the United States is, is in it as well. So it has every interest in the keeping things limited at the northern border. It doesn't want Hezbollah to cross the Israeli red line. This is why they have a large military boat in the Mediterranean. It's a clear signal to Hezbollah and to Iran. So I, I don't expect uh, things to uh, escalate there. And it also depends on what the American administration in private, and I think that's already happening, uh, to Israel in terms of its obligations in protecting civilians in Gaza. Now, anybody looking at the situation in, in Gaza today uh, can see that the bombardments are indiscriminate. Many, many people have died. We just don't have good numbers yet. The full scale of what is happening is yet unclear. But I think the Biden administration, sooner or later, is going to... Uh, uh, to urge Israel to exercise greater restraints. Now, if that does not happen, and in fact there is going to be mass, mass casualties in Gaza, it will become increasingly difficult for Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and inside Israel, but also for Hezbollah in Lebanon and Palestinian groups in, in Lebanon not to respond. And then you could have a dangerous escalation. And so we've spoken about Hamas's calculations, but as you say, Israel... It doesn't have a lot of good options for Gaza. I mean, you get rid of Hamas, who governs. Uh, there's not a good alternative necessarily for Israel. Plus, of course, there's the hostages. So Israel's options in Gaza in terms of removing Hamas and replacing it with something else just don't seem very good. No, so I agree with that. And I think that has been part of the Hamas's calculation. So in that sense, whether we like it or not, I think Hamas has already certainly uh, won a, a psychological victory by you know, catching Israel by surprise, and then a political one by placing Israel in a position where it doesn't really have a good solution, at a tremendous cost to Gaza, uh, of course. There's no question about that. Yos, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. So on Friday afternoon, I had the opportunity to speak again to Asmi that morning. The Israelis ordered more than a million Gazans to leave the north of the Strip and Asmi and his family left their home that morning. I asked him first how he had heard that he was going to have to leave. Hi Richard. I heard it from friends at 2 a.m. this morning. They called me and they told me there is this news that uh, Israel had requested uh, the NGOs to leave uh, Gaza uh, and northern Gaza towards the southern part of Gaza. 
and they, then we thought it was a rumor but uh, at 6 six thirty, Al Jazeera wrote about it and when everybody woke up uh, turned to be it's, it's true I decided to take my family and comply and I moved from Gaza city to Khan Yunis but unfortunately I hear in Khan Yunis the same sounds of bombing so I don't know if I made the right choice Do you have a sense at all of how many people left? I don't know exactly how many people had left Gaza but I know my neighborhood almost everyone had left uh, my building everyone had left my relatives the one the immediate ones almost every one of them also had left and those who haven't left had called me uh, earlier and asked me what should I what what should they do and I told them they have to leave uh, in my way to Hanunis, I've seen hundreds of cars and on top of this car mattresses and uh, blankets, you know, all, all sorts they need if they can uh, stay in a temporary place. Beside people, some of the people, because there is no fuel, there is no cars, you know, they were walking the distance from Gaza to the southern of Gaza Valley. Uh, or on what we call tuk-tuk, which is uh, tricycles. What was it like to leave your your home? It was the hardest decision of my life, in the hardest day of my life. After one big hard night, also one of the hardest in my life, when I made that decision that uh, for the sake of my uh, my children, my daughter, young daughter, and my grandchildren, you know, to, to leave my house and to leave uh, to leave Gaza to the south, especially we have in mind probably that will be the first step towards uh, pushing us more towards Egypt or the Sinai. The only image I had in my mind is when Palestinians had been displaced in 1948 and it, it, it is repeating itself and this time in the 20, 21st century under the nose and the eye of the whole world. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the Hamas attack, the war in Gaza on our website, crisisgroup.org. Thanks for joining this first episode of our fourth season. I'm sure we'll be covering Israel-Palestine and the war in Gaza again next week. So please do tune in for that.